Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now, on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week on the podcast, we have Colin Chia, founder of Nutmeg and Clove in Singapore and hashtag find the locker room in Bangkok. We chat about founding world-class festival in Southeast Asia, opening Nutmeg and Clove in Singapore and his expansion into the Bangkok market. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. Hi everyone, my name is Colin. I am the founder of Nutmeg and Clove Singapore. Hashtag find the locker room Bangkok and hashtag find the photo booth in Bangkok. Thank you very much for finding the time. So first of all, uh, you are uh, one of the first, I'd say, industry leaders that actually went on and opened bars in Singapore. How is the scene changed in the past, say, 15 to 20 years? Um, first of all, I wouldn't say I'm one of the first leaders to open um, great bars in Singapore, but I would say for the past 10, 15 years, um, it has been a fantastic journey. Uh, the scene has matured a lot. We have a lot of great bars, a lot of good foreign bartenders coming in to share the different culture. Uh, we have seen a lot of bars now have different concepts. One thing that is the most important thing is about our consumers. Mm-hmm. I feel that our consumers now are very well traveled, um, has good knowledge. And sometimes the consumers are the one educating us, mm-hmm. you know, and I can't be prouder of the Singapore bar industry. That's cool. Very cool. So when did you get, uh, so first of all, when did you get into bartending? What was your first uh, bartending job? Well, I started bartending in the mid 90s. I would say 95, 96. Um, I was bartending in the coolest clubs in Singapore. You know, back then there weren't any cocktail bars, but there were cool dance clubs. Uh-huh. I work in dance clubs like Sparks and Kento. Mm-hmm. Um, those were a place where you have live music, live band, uh, popular cocktails like Rainbow, Blue Lagoon, B52, Long Blue. Island Iced Tea. The beautiful flavor of blue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And how did that go for you? Like, What were the challenges you had? Uh, I think back then there weren't any challenges. The, um, the only challenges I would say is drinking more tequilas than your fellow bartenders. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, those are fun times, you know. You're in your teens. I was in my 18, 19 years old. You just want to go to work, have some fun, enjoy the environment, dance along with the crowd, make new friends. Um, it wasn't really like, you know, making the best cocktail out there, having the best menu program. You know, it's all about coming to my club, having a good fun night together and going home together as a team. You know, we look forward to the end of the night, beers and tequila shots. That's pretty awesome though, eh? Yeah. Cool. So, um, those are your clubbing days. Outside of your clubbing days, what are the bar experiences that shaped you the most? Um, okay, after I stopped working at the bars, I actually did a couple of things uh, in airport catering and also with um, restaurants. I started working a little as a chef, as a cook actually in Tonglok Group. Oh, cool. Yeah, I had a, a great chef by the name of Chef Souza who taught me a lot of things. And then after that, I decided the bar environment is where I'm most suited. And then I joined the Emerald Hill Group. 
Mm-hmm. Started as a wine waiter in Kepasa Wine Bar. And it's at the Emerald Hill Group where it really shaped my career and also built me into who I am today. So what are the things that uh, it gave you? I had a great mentor. You know, again, I must stress that during those time in the early 2000s, there weren't cocktail bars. We were not great cocktail bars. Yes, there was cocktail bar in number 5 Emerald Hill, which is part of the group. Um, but at the end of the day, it's serving the great smile on your face, mm. giving good service, remembering what your customer wants. And the key message here was shaping yourself into a great person. And mm-hmm. that is a philosophy that I carry myself all my career. I think you've got to be strong-minded, you've got to have the right character, and you've got to have good faith as a person. Mm-hmm. Which is why to today, I always tell my team, may it be in Singapore or Bangkok, that I'm not here to make you the best bartender. I'm not qualified enough to make you the best bartender. But I can help shape you into the path that you want to take. A great person, because if you're a good person, whatever you do will be a good success. That's great words, right? I think we're in the business of people, right? And generally speaking, being a good good one of those, it really helps, uh, yeah. it really helps you, right? And it's something that we should never forget, right? So in terms of uh, that specific experience, at some point, uh, you have moved to Diageo, right? Yeah, 2007, I moved to Diageo. Uh, I was offered a position named Brand Ambassador. God knows what was a Brand Ambassador back then. I believe we were guinea pigs uh-huh. um, to test this uh-huh. this role, you know. Um, but I was promised to be able to travel the world, you know. And I took a pay cut and I joined Diageo as a Brand Ambassador. I believe back then, uh, myself... Kevin Chang from Korea and Alex from Taiwan were the first three brand ambassadors in Asia for any brands, if not the world. And uh, how was that uh, journey? Because I think not not having a, a precise job description can be something quite challenging, right? Oh, it was challenging. You know, I, I'm, I'm from the bar background and I have no idea what it takes to work in an FMCG like Diageo, a big Montgomery. Uh, but it, it was an interesting position, interesting job. And the good thing is, with this, when there's no job description, it was left to us, uh-huh. you know. And we did what we could, and we are proud that the brand ambassador is a very key role that it is for any brands today. Mm-hmm. But the first two years was fun, but it was also challenging oh, sure. because there's different. There are different types of brand ambassador. There are brand ambassadors that look after image looks after marketing, looks after social media. But there are also brand ambassadors that looks after the trade that brings in the volume and talks about the numbers. Mm-hmm. So they have two different types of brand ambassadors. And I'm glad we played a part, you know, uh, play a good part to shaping what brand ambassadors do today. What kind of brand ambassador were you? Number I was number two. I was the numbers one, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I, I had the feeling you'd say that. <laughs> I wasn't. The, I didn't have the face, man. Come on, man. I'm not an Angus Winchester, yeah. you know. I am the numbers person, you know. Uh-huh. You know, Angus could talk to anyone, but I could sell to anyone. Okay. You know? Yeah, it's very, very important, <laughs> isn't it? At some point, though, after that, you went back into bars, right? And you decided to open your own? Uh, I spent two years in Diageo. Mm. Brand ambassadors only lasted two years. Okay. And then I moved into brand management and commercial roles within Asia Pacific. So a lot of a lot of numbers there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I left Diageo in year twenty seventeen. Uh, mm-hmm. uh my final role of there with them was a commercial head for Asia Pacific Global Reserve. Uh in fact I co founded World Class in Asia. 
started Southeast Asia World Class Festival, World Class Finals. It was during the World Class journey that made me wanted, um, you know, maybe I should open a bar. So I had my first bar. It was named Cox Feathers. And what year was this? I think it was in year 2009. So you were opening and running the bars while you were still at Diageo? Yes, uh, okay. I was running a bar. wasn't really running, co-running. Uh, I was more of a back of the house. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But the bar didn't last long. To be honest, I thought I had a good advantage because we were the first, being a brand ambassador in Diageo, had, had first knowledge of trends around the world. Uh-huh. So we were working with the drink factory in London. Mm-hmm. We, we did a lot of so-called molecular... Uh, mixology and then we started to introduce it in Cox Feathers obviously we didn't do it as well as Tipling Club you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. which is why we closed after one one year one one year two months okay yeah. and like talk to us about that specific process because I think it's very very like I think uh, to be able to open bars successfully right you need to be able to understand when a project is making money and when it will never make money and you need to sort of cut your losses. So how, what was the kind of thought process you guys had when you went through this? I, I believe, first of all, and this is what I always believe, if you want to do a business, you want to open a bar, you must invest money, right? Um, so what happened at Cox Feathers was that, I'll be honest, we didn't invest any money. We were giving stretch shares. Mm. So which means the decision to close the business was never going to be up to you. Mm-hmm. But we were glad that the, the, the majority of the owners wanted to close the bar because it was bleeding. And it was through that experience that I realized that to run a successful bar is, is not being a good bar manager or being a great head bartender. It's about making the right business decision. Mm-hmm. Um, if you talk about many bars these days, many bar owners get emotional, they are pride involved and they refuse to close. And then it gets dragged longer and longer. And then the hole gets deeper and deeper and you bleed more. Mm-hmm. You could have closed six months ago, right? You could have closed six months ago and you have saved you so much heartbreak. So I think you have to really analyze. You have to do your numbers properly. You have to do your KPEX, OPEX. You have to do your calculation. Being a good head bartender doesn't necessarily equate to being a good bar owner. Mm-hmm. And it's during those failures that I learned a lot about running a business. So after, uh, so after that bar... Okay, so the bike, the bar closed down. It must have been reasonably heartbreaking, right? Um, it was a little heartbreaking, but we knew that at the end of the day, the business didn't really belong to us. Okay, so you know, no, we, no, no, yeah. no biggie there. So what was your next uh, like bar bar? You know, I continued to work in Diageo, had a very successful career with Diageo, and then uh, halfway through, it's, it's time to open the bar. You know, back um, when I opened the bar, there was already good bars. Um, like Jig and Pony, Tipling Club, the Cuffling Club, and the Library. Mm-hmm. A lot of there were a lot of talents in Singapore, and I think oh, it's time to have one more bar. You know, Singapore can have more than that five six bars. You know, there was twenty Hong Kong Street as well. Mm-hmm. I think let's let's join the game. Let's have some fun. So we put together a team, a really strong team, and opened Nutmeg and Clove. Okay. Yeah, uh, this team was really really strong. It was my dream team. You know. Again, a dream team that consists of uh, Marin Beke, which is one of my partner. There was Kayin from Taiwan, Elvin Aoyong, and Jackie. Jackie from Hong Kong, who is now based in Shanghai, Beijing. And uh, how did you go about it? So how difficult was for you to... Oh, it was tough. It was really, really tough. First of all, um, 
this this is when we really get hands on. You need to apply S passes, work permits, you know, and that's where you find a lot of challenges. That was when also government started being very strong on timings of operations. You stop getting new license that can open till two o'clock. So it's all restaurant license. Midnight you gotta close. So we fought for two years. We fought for two years to open beyond twelve and we were not we were not getting it. You know, and that was the key reason we lost quite a bit of money. I'll be honest. But I always believe in the brand. You know, being a businessman sometimes, yes, you know when you should cut your losses. But sometimes you know that this brand could work. It mm. should work. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But you're just unlucky of the place that you're in, time of operations, many factors. And also during that time, uh, a lot of people left us. Uh, Marin went off to open Gibson on his own. He left uh-huh. Niger. So we respected that. Kayin had some father was ill, so he went back to Taiwan. Bani Kang left Bani left and went back to Antidote. Uh-huh. So we had to rebuild our team again. And our lease came to an end after two years and we decided to move. So from like you thinking, I want to open this place and putting together this team to having the bar open, how long was the whole process? Uh, about one and a half years, easily. Uh, we talked about the bar for eight months and then it took us about seven months to put things together. It was a very long process, detailed process. Um, everything from the bar program to the design of the place to the identity of it being a Singaporean cocktail bar because we wanted it to be a real bar that talks about the history and story of Singapore. So a lot of research needs to be done on the back end, you know. And why we are in Ang Siang Hill is because it used to be a nutmeg and clove plantation, you know, in the early years. You know, it's named after Chia Ang Siang, one of our forefathers. Uh-huh. So it took a long time, one and a half years, as I to to open when we first, when when we opened the bar, <sighs> well done, we did it. But after two months, oh man, we are back on our back again. You know, we are working very hard to meet the numbers. We are fighting the police to give us extension. It was never ending. But uh, meanwhile, you were still working for Diageo, though. Uh yeah, we were still working for Diageo. Um, I had approval from Diageo to open a restaurant bar, mm-hmm. so everything was done in compliance. Uh-huh. Um, the day-to-day operations was uh, done by my partners. Uh, I was in charge of more of the back-end marketing uh-huh. image, doing of uh, identity menu, stuff like that. It must have been very, very challenging to juggle both jobs at the same time, right? Um, it's tough, but it's what you love doing, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's what you love doing. And I had a great team, to be honest. Um, I didn't do much. I probably spent a few hours a week. I had great team in in, in Marion and in in Kai, you know they did most of the things. You know? Mostly, I just wanted the bar to go hang out. To be honest, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's a very good that's a very good way to I go was, about it, right? I was spending too much money in other bars. Exactly. And at what stage did you decide to relocate? Um, after two years, and there was an opportunity to move to a new location in a joint venture. That was when I moved to my current location because because it had the existing license of two a.m. So that was jackpot for me. Yeah, that's the baby you want. That's the baby. It? Yeah, you yeah, can close at two a.m. on a weekday, weeknight, uh, weekends. That helped us a lot, and that changed the whole game for us. And how was the relocation process? Did you struggle to retain brand identity, or not really? Um, uh, no, we didn't struggle. We took us two months to relocate. And yeah, it was a breeze because we already knew what we wanted to do. And we were on the same street. 
So the brand messaging remained the same. And I took a more hands-on role because I was on my way out of Diageo. Uh-huh. There was a restructure and the global team, I was from the global team and they were all moving to Amsterdam. And I didn't want, so I took the opportunity to just, all right, you know, let's go our parting ways now. And I expanded my business. That's cool. And uh, so how did the relocation go? Was it like successful, like money-wise? And- yeah, um, it's really successful. You could see your weekend sales increase by 50 to 60%. Whoa, weekend that's sales. Crazy. Yeah, because additional hour, additional two hours. You know, the problem is when people come to your bar at about 11 o'clock and you tell them last order is at 11.45, they might not stay. They might not even walk in. They will just walk out. But uh-huh. we have to do our due diligence to be honest with customers in our old location. Of course. You know, we, last order is in 45 minutes, you know. Because if they come in and then they sit for 30 minutes, they have their first drink, oh, sorry, last order, please. They'll be angry. You know, so once they hear that we are closing in 45 minutes, they won't even walk in. So we lose a lot of business. But when I move to a new location and it's um, 2 a.m., people walking at 11 is still party time. Uh-huh, you know? Of course, so of course. They spend more, you know, so... It was really important to get that. So you mentioned that you had a very strong opening team and you had a very strong identity at the beginning. Has the identity or uh, like brief behind the menu changed throughout the years or has it stayed with more or less with the same DNA? Um, DNA remained the same. It has always been telling a story of Singapore. The first menu that we did was talking about the different timeline of Singapore from bringing a British colony to modernization of Singapore today. Three years ago, we started working with National Heritage Board, the National Museum, um, where they had encyclopedia by our one of our founder, uh, founders, William Farker, uh, who did a natural drawings of what he saw in Singapore when he first came to Singapore. So we used that as inspiration to create a menu called mm-hmm. Flavors and Memories. So we did two volumes of Flavors and Memories. So our current menu, we have moved away from that natural drawings book. We are now doing the five pillars of Singapore and the cuisine. So we are doing cocktails that pay homage and tribute to um, the cuisines of Malay, Chinese, Indian, Eurasian and Peranakan. So using that as an inspiration to twist classic cocktail. So, for example, one of our more popular drinks is called the Maxwell Martini. Using the Vesper Martini as an inspiration, we created sort of a chicken rice-inspired martini. Oh, that's cool. How's, how's that? Um, by using Hendrix for its floral notes, and we made our own chicken rice distillate and stirred down with cucumber vermouth. In fact, Jaden was the... Jaden, this crazy girl. She's the one that uh, wanted to do this and I was fighting her because I thought that this drink would be too savoury, uh-huh. too umami. But she I want to do it, you know. Okay, okay. You know, I would never say no to people, right? Uh, to my team. And then she did it and I loved it. Good, good on her, you know. So, uh, fantastic. So, we, we have a lot of, many drinks now in the menu that is interesting flavours and we always believe in using our menu to tell a story about Singapore so that Locals, when they come have a drink, it brings back memories of their childhood or when they were young. Or for tourists, when they come to Singapore, they learn something about Singapore. That's pretty awesome. So we talked about the menu. In terms of uh, team uh, building or building your team, you mentioned that's a crucial part of your business. As a bar owner, what is it that you look for when you hire someone? 
um, I look for someone that is, I can't put it in words, but when I interview someone, I look at their eyes. Because your eyes tells a story about you. Uh-huh. And whether you're sincere, I don't look for someone that is a superstar bartender. If you realize, Nutmeg and Clove has never been, um, for the past four years, has never been about hiring star bartenders, uh-huh. famous award winners, champion this, champion that. We believe in having the right balance in the team. Um, if they join us, if they win a competition, great. Great for them, great for everyone. Uh, and it's a bonus. But when we hire someone, uh, I look at sincerity on whether you want to learn mm-hmm. or you are willing to be part of a team because a team player is more important than an individual, you know, willing to learn, willing to accept that um, things are done certain ways. Mm-hmm. Mm. <coughs> That's great. And um, so now that making crop is up and running, everything is fine and dandy. At what point have you set your uh, sights on Thailand? <laughs> um, I'm very close friends with Ueno san and Nick Wu and a couple of uh, Thai legends, Ranapon and Jen. And we always have a vanity project. We always wanted to have a bar in Thailand, all right? So opening a bar in Bangkok, I always talk to Ueno san, hey, we, we have to have a bar in Bangkok, you know, so I can tell my wife that I have a bar in Bangkok. I need to go there very often. We love the food, we love the people, uh-huh. and we love the massages, uh-huh. right? It's cheap and good, right? But we never thought it would happen. Um, it was just beer talk. Uh-huh. Every time we drink, ah, we should have a bar in Bangkok, we should have a bar in Bangkok. And one fine day, I was in Bangkok, and I was with um, a good friend of mine. Her name is uh, Jackie. She's the owner of some of the best restaurants in, in Bangkok. And we came to a place in Arena 10 in Tonglaw. See, wow, this place is for rent. This place is for rent. There was an opportunity. And I look at the place. I say, this place could work. Let's do it. 20 minutes. I called Ueno san. I called Nick Wu. Okay. Do you want to do it? Yes, 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 done. 20 minutes. And then the no following way. day, we signed the lease. No way. Yes. And we didn't have a bar in mind. We just took the place. We have no concept. We just want to take it first. That's amazing though. Yeah. Huh? And uh, so from that point, that's a very unusual way of going about <laughs> opening a bar. So from that point onwards, what were the steps that you took in order uh, to make this place come alive? Well, we had no idea what we wanted to do. Uh-huh. It wasn't really expensive. It, I mean, the, the, the rental was alright. Um, it was manageable. And we thought, why don't we just make a speakeasy bar? I know speakeasy is overused, but this is about three years ago in Bangkok when it's, uh-huh. when it's still not booming, mm-hmm. you know. So let's make a real speakeasy bar. You know, let's make a speakeasy bar that no one has done before in this region. So just do it. I remember there was this place that in New York that I used to go when I was in Diageo. I forgot the name of the place. Uh-huh. A, a colleague brought me there and it was going through a Chinese kitchen. Okay. And then when you walk in, it was a beautiful lounge. Not a cocktail bar, but a lounge. So, wow, this place is cool. All the girls were in, in, in Chongsam. And, uh, so I just wanted a, a bar that no one knows. We just call it the bar. And that's it. Right? So, finally... The concept was born within a day. Okay. So we call it the bar. No telephone number, no social media, no website. The bar was behind the kitchen of a Chinese restaurant through the doors of Staff Locker. Okay. So that was the entrance of the bar. That's cool. Yeah. And uh, we had a grand opening 
one day, uh, Nick came, Ueno-san came, Ronapon, all of us were in the bar. And we just said, why don't we just try, the bar is open. We invited close friends online, not even Facebook or WhatsApp. In Thailand, they use Line. Okay. So each of us sent to five people. Okay, so tend to find people online. Uh, of course, Nick and Ueno-san and myself weren't Thai, so we didn't send anyone uh-huh. in line. So it was Jen, Ronapon, and my business partner, Jackie. They sent to 5% three days ago before the opening. Opening night, yeah. we had 100 over people. That's crazy, huh? 100 over people. Whoa. And that was the time that I re- I've never worked so hard in my life before for opening of a bar. <laughs> I kid you not. I was sweating. I was telling people, no, you can't go in. It's full. You know? So, we were so packed. I had to ask people to leave. I'm sorry. You know, next time I come back, drinks on me. We had no idea that it it, it went so viral. And it was probably one of the best moment or craziest moment of my business career, to be honest. Uh, and yeah, so it was named The Bar. No social media, no website. And it was still successful. Every night, it was booming. Every night, people were coming, people were coming. So how long is it being open for now? Um, this year will be our third year. Okay. Uh, business is still very good. Why it was named hashtag find the locker room? Yeah, because that's that's how I know it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, after six months, our team decided we need to have a name for the bar. We need to have an identity. Yeah. Um, but I said, no, come on. They said, okay, let's, let's do something. You know, we will use the most popular hashtag has the name of a bar. So that's a pretty cool idea. So we got an agency that helped us to count all the hashtags. Hashtag box, black box, hashtag locker. Hash- and the number one that stood up was hashtag find the locker room. Okay. And then you will find the bar. So if someone wants to find the bar nowadays, like how does it work? We moved location mm-hmm. um, because the landlord sold the land. Okay. After mm-hmm. about ten months, it's a big problem, eh? For it, like as a bar opener, like yeah. having to deal with a landlord. I yeah. realized, like everyone has some sort of a landlord horror stories. Oh, he doubled my rent. Oh, he like yeah. he stole this, he did that. Landlord is still the king of the business. If you ask yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. uh, so right now, if you want to come to find the locker room, you just got to find the locker room. Uh, we do have a telephone number. Mm-hmm. You do. You can line the number or you can call the number if someone picks up. But we'll never tell you where is it. Okay. You got to find it. That's you know? so cool. That's very cool. So then after that? After that, we opened our second bar, hashtag find the photo booth. And I told myself that would be the last big easy. We had a big space opportunity on the second floor of Grand President Hotel in Soy 11. Soy 11 is the party street of Bangkok. Uh, it's... It's an amazing street. It was one of my favorite streets when I was young. A lot of beautiful bars, good sports bar, and I love sports bar. I love sports. I mm. die for Liverpool. Uh-huh. I go oh, to really? Liverpool once a year. No way. Yeah. Film Greenwich. Yeah. <laughs> Every year, I, I have to watch a match in Liverpool. And we had a space, and again, my partner and I, Jackie, look at this space on the second floor. It's huge. So I said, first thing, sports bar. Yes, let's do a sports bar, right? And then we got an architect, we got a designer, we came in. Ah, man, it's huge, man. It's, it's going to cost a lot of money. you got, you got to make a lot of money to, to keep this place going. You know? Yeah, profitable. Yeah, and then we had great sports bar opposite us, Australian bar, the German bar. They've all been there for ages. So Jackie was saying, let's divide this place into two. So okay, 
let's do that. So we work around it and we, we, we cordon off. We, so on the second floor, we have two bars. We have a premium sports bar, um, really, really high-end, nice environment, great food, um, not as rowdy, very comfortable. And then at the back, you have hashtag find the photo booth. So what happens is that there is a real photo booth in the sports bar. The name of the sports bar is called, it's named Score. Okay. Score. Um, you can score a lot of different things in life, right? Uh-huh. So it's named Score. And you walk into Score. At the end of Score Bar, you will see a photo booth. Uh-huh. And the rest is history. That's right? awesome, huh? Yeah. So hashtag Foying Photo Booth is it's a fun vibe. It's, it's not a serious cocktail bar. Okay. Our cocktail menu does Long Island Iced Tea, Blue Lagoon, B-52, um, Singapore Slings, cocktails from the 80s. Uh-huh. Uh, on Friday, and then we have live DJs, different genre of music on Fridays and Saturdays. How big is it? Um, it's not huge. It, it, can, it can fit easily 100 over. Okay, okay, okay. Um, it's, it has a good vibe. Um, it's a place where it's like a mini cocktail dance club. Okay, so you differentiated your products in uh, Bangkok by having the serious uh, cocktail bar and the fun cocktail bar, essentially. Yeah, correct. We, we don't take ourselves seriously and find the photo booth, uh, but we make sure the drinks are good and solid. Uh-huh. Uh, but the vibe is very important. You know, velvet seats, uh, high tables, you can dance along with the music. Uh, find the locker room is more of a real speakeasy. Uh, I wouldn't say we are very, very serious, but all our drinks are very uh, professionally made, especially our classics. Our senior bartenders will make the trip to Bar High Five to be trained by the team there on how to make proper classics. So oh, we that's take crazy. it. Yeah, uh, they suffer when they go there. Trust me. Of course. They they say, "Oh yes, I'm going to Japan." The f- our first hit bartender who went, she was so happy, you know. But the second day, she says, "I want to come back home." Yeah, <laughs> we went from a hashtag find the locker room to hashtag reality check. <laughs> <laughs> So when they came back, they really, really, really appreciate, you know, um, the lifestyle in Bangkok. But they still maintain the high standard, you know. And every time we hire somebody new, they always tell them, this is what you'll be doing. Bup, bup, bup. You're going to work 12, 14 hours. Because it's unheard of in Bangkok. Mm-hmm. We, our bartenders really work very long hours. Really, really long hours. They come in, they have eye shift. All the eyes are hand cut. Okay. I, I, I'm halfway on cutting eyes. But I believe that when you cut your own eyes, you feel more for the job. Uh-huh. There's more connectivity between yourself and your drinks, you know? And the, the bartender seems to love cutting eyes. So, yeah, you have an eye shave, you have a garden shave, you have pressing of juice, you know? Pressing of citrus, it's not just, that's it. You know, you got to press the way that Ueno San teach you, left, right, left, right, done. Okay, and then this, it's true, this, the juice, the citrus are a bit, most pleasant it's not as bitter it's sweeter uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, so the stuff in in Bangkok works really really hard you know now that I talk about it I think I need to treat them better yeah no, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no I agree with you and I think you know ice is like probably the most important ingredient that we have in bars right Yeah, and, and, and I think it's a great point where to start hmm. you know when you want to really to take care of quality of one of the products that we produce which is drinks right hmm um, how is the bar scene in uh, Bangkok? Um, Bangkok, I would say, it's fantastic. It's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, the people say that the growth of Singapore bar scene is probably one of the best in the world. You never see something grow in 10 years so much. 
But I think Bangkok is a different animal. I think Bangkok is growing faster than you what... You think so? Yeah, Bangkok grow has fast, if not slightly faster than how Singapore grew. Okay, you look at Singapore. The main cocktail area is Chinatown. Uh-huh. Right? In Chinatown. And then you have hotel bars around Singapore. But if you talk about street bars, centralized. The Chinatown uh-huh. area. Yep. The Tolok Ayer, the Amoy, the Ang Siang, and then you have Kyong Saik, Bukit Paso. But in Bangkok, there is Sukong Vic. Alright? You have your Sugar Ray, you find the follow booth. Now you have Concord in in Sukhumvik. Then you have Tong Law, your Rabbit Hole, your Locker Room, your Taipioca, your Backstage Bar, and then you have Chinatown. You have your Nana area, you know your Old Town, you know where there is Tins of Thailand, Asia Today. You have um, Saton Silom where you have your Vesper, Eat Me. So there's so many cluster. Uh-huh. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and then when you go out, it's packed. It's always packed. It's everybody's doing so well. It's amazing. And the number of bars that's opening every two every other month, it's just coming up. There's Grimson Room. Uh now there is uh, filtration. And then look at the hotel bars. It's doing so well. You know, and it's it's you think about it. You know, Manhattan is the only cocktail bar in the hotel for many years. And then for the past, I think Man MO Bar was two years ago. Yeah, two years two ago. Years ago like, Idol Wow is probably one year ago. Uh-huh. It's only like one, two years ago where the hotel bars really emerged. Uh-huh. Origin is also about two years, right? Yeah, two years and a bit. Yeah. Two years. So only the last two years. Bangkok, in the last 18 months for hotel bars, that shows you how much they're growing. And it's a different animal. Like, that's why uh, I decided to uh, start Bangkok Bar Show. Okay. Together with uh, Nick Sanuman from Teens of Thailand mm-hmm. and Jamie from Bamboo Bar. Mm-hmm. We started Bamboo, uh, Bangkok Bar Show last year, first year. Two days um, festival. We had about 20 over brand booth, 20 over craft tables. We had eight seminars. We had more than a thousand consumers over two days. I heard it was brutal because like, I, I remember like I was speaking to Jamie about it and he was perpetually hungover throughout the whole bar show. He had the toughest job. He was he was entertaining on the guest bartender. So he was working his liver. Oh. Yeah, working his liver. Um, but he was successful. So so we launched um, Bangkok Bar Show uh, for sale for this year. We were sold out within one week. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, so that shows how much intense the market is how much the consumers want to come out you know so i think bangkok industry the cocktail bar industry is booming at the moment it's really exciting i i can't be more excited for for bangkok Uh, in terms of raw profitability where is it easier to make money is it in bangkok or in singapore if you open your own bar not every bar can be employees only or Jika and Pony. Uh, you know, those are high volume success story. I have the utmost respect for Igor, Indra and Koyi. You know what they have done, you know, I think Jika and Pony is probably still one of my favorite bar to go to. Oh, it uh, certainly is one of mine. Like yeah? It's absolutely stunning. Yeah. It's stunning. The business model is great. The vibe, the, I think the profitability is amazing. man. I mean, I, I have not talked to them about profitability, but I mean, as a businessman, you can see. Um, from my perspective, I think right now Bangkok gives me more profit than Singapore, mm-hmm. and I'll be honest here: Singapore is competitive, uh-huh. all right, and also because of landlord and manpower. You want to do more, 
but you can't really do more. You know, hiring is a problem because we are just one small cocktail bar with four employees, five employees. We cannot go crazy and hire um, someone from Philippines or someone from from Bangkok. We got to stay and find Singaporeans. And it's tough to find Singaporeans bartenders. I'm sure you know that. You know? No, 100%. In terms of that, do you see a shift in culture? Because you've been uh, in the bartending industry in Singapore for a good chunk of time, right? Mm. So have you seen like Singaporeans approaching the job more or less? Oh, I think more. Okay. I think more. Um, when, when I started 20 over years ago, bartending is just a part-time job. Uh-huh. You tell your family that you want to be a bartender, your father probably slapped you. <laughs> no way. <laughs> it's true. 25 years ago. But you say, I'm just doing this for part-time, holiday, money, it's fine. Okay. But as a career, probably not. You know? But look at today. One of the key things why I started and I was very adamant and stubborn about having world-class in Asia was because I believe that bartending can be a career. Mm-hmm. You know? If I could make a career from being a bartender, why not everybody? If chefs are highly regarded, why can't be bartenders? Mm-hmm. You know, so we did our best. We, I think a lot of the bartending competition, like World Class, Bacardi Legacy, you know, a lot of the brands played a very important role in shaping the career of bartending to what it is today. And today, I, I, I'm happy to say that being a bartender is a respected position. It's a respected uh, career. You know, I'm not opposed to my daughter taking over my business and start as a bartender. You know, you look at um, David from Manhattan. His son is the bartender of EO Sydney. And that's something that I look up to and highly respect. And a lot of Singaporean bartenders are joining the craft, the trade now. You know, I was recently at uh, and Pony. I've seen a few new Singaporean-born apprentices, which warms my heart. And I'm also very jealous. How the hell did they get all these Singaporean apprentices? That's true, right? <laughs> Send some CVs over, please. No, but I agree with you. And I think it's it's refreshing to see, I think, the fact that we're starting to have more local talent that really wants to be in this industry. Because also, I think that it's the, the, the most amazing part of it is that if you have local champions that do it very, very well at bars, then mm-hmm. you'll have more local guests. Yeah, that yeah. Everybody will see, you know, so you, you have all these great people like um, Yugi, uh, Elephant Room, um, you have uh, Vijay from Native. These are great examples which young Singaporeans can look up to, you know, and use them as role models, you know. Mm-hmm. You, but nothing comes for free. Nothing is easy. you got to work hard for many, many years and make sure that you, just, you don't just learn about how to shake a cocktail or make great drinks. When you have time, learn about the business model, learn about beverage cost, the costing, PNL, and all this will come in handy when you really when when in the end you want to open your own bar. If you could look back at your former self when you opened the bar for the first time, right? What would be the biggest piece of advice you'd give to yourself? What one of those things that you wish someone told you? Um I wish I had me now telling my former self not to get too emotional in business sometimes. Um, to have a good balance between practicality and emotion. I think, um, I put it another way, doing business is not easy. There are no friends in business. Uh-huh. All right, many people tell you that when you do make, uh, when you have a business, friendship is cast aside. And never do 
business with your best friends. Okay. Right? That's a lot of advice that I don't really agree because my business partner in Singapore and my business partner in Thailand is probably one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. But that is because we have a lot of respect for each other and also we know how to set aside friendship when it comes to business uh-huh. and put emotions aside. You know, sometimes you want to let someone go, for example, and that you think about, uh, if I let him go, when I fire him, his wife with kids might suffer. You know, yeah, sometimes you will feel emotions like that, but you got to make decisions, hard decisions. Uh-huh. You know, and use more practicality than emotion in business. Yeah, and it must be so difficult, right? Especially letting people go must be disgusting. But, you know, if uh, the option is uh, the business is going to tank, you mm. know, and like, do I leave five people, including myself, without a job? Or do I leave one person without a job, you know? Yeah, I, my last option is always to let people go. So, for example, now business is down because of the uh, virus. Yeah, I'm committed to not let anyone on my team take even unpaid leave. Uh-huh. You know, unpaid leave means less salary. Mm-hmm. But what we're doing is we are talking together and we are finding a solution. Maybe, you know, can you take uh, your annual leave now? You know, take more holidays now. And then when the things recover, then you work harder. Uh-huh. You know, so you make use of your holidays. You know, we stop taking part-timers. You know, um, I've been working the shift on weekends, you know, and save some costs. But um, I never believe in, 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 in firing people. So... What I mentioned earlier was just a hypothetical emotion versus practicality. No, 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 of course. Uh, yeah. like, I'm sure you're not firing people every the second day of the week. So, <laughs> 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 No, no, but uh, yeah, no, you're right. I think having a clear head, make sure that your heart does not play too much of a role in making yeah. business decisions is very important, right? It's very important, you know, and understand more about business. For bartenders who want to be a bar owner, it's a good ambition. But learn more about the business. You making the best cocktail in the world doesn't make you a good bar owner. <laughs> it's heaven and hell, to be honest. <laughs> so, like, in terms of uh, future projects, do you have anything down the pipeline that you want to share? or? Um, we are looking at a couple more projects in Bangkok. Okay. Uh, we actually, there was, there was an opportunity to do something in Singapore as well. But we KIV it uh, because of the current situation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We wanted to look after our current business first. Um, it's not something I can share at the moment because no. it might not even <laughs> come true. Otherwise, right? we'll keep following you. Then uh, <laughs> we'll find out that way. And um, what is it that you do? Because obviously, like you're, you've been a very busy person, right? What is it that you do to unplug? Like, what helps you like relax, unwind? Uh, family time. Yeah, I have um, two daughters right now. Uh, one is twelve and one is eight. Uh, many people know this. I don't go on weekends. I don't go on Saturdays, Sundays. It's it's daddy duties. Uh-huh. I take them for their ballet classes. You know, every weekday, no matter how late I go home, uh huh, I will wake up at six thirty in the morning. I will spend some time with them, have breakfast, uh-huh. talk to them about school, and then they go to school. Sometimes I get home about 3 o'clock, totally bloody wasted, you know, and I still wake up at 6.30, rig of alcohol, <laughs> and the elder one, 12 years old, knows, she knows, she, she's old enough, she knows what I do, right? She, 
Then she'll say, ah, Papa, it's okay. You go back to sleep. No, no, no. I want to talk to you. And then I'll just sit there with my my coffee. My helper will make a really strong espresso. You know? uh-huh. And I'll just drink the, the espresso and look at them, stand to their eyes. But there's nothing more beautiful, right? When uh-huh. they kiss you goodbye. So why do I wake up so early? Because I want to have that kiss goodbye from them uh-huh. when they go to school. Um, and then weekends, we spend a lot of time together, you know. It's, I'm at the age where I don't need to go to dance club to unwind. I know, right? right? <laughs> uh, I prefer, you know, spending time with them, shopping, uh, having coffee, going to the playground, playing board games, you know, playing Uno yeah. and, and stuff like that. You know, make me happy. Um, and the other unwind moment of my life is watching football. Oh yeah, of course. Yes, you're you know? big Liverpool thing, yeah. is it? So this 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 has been a great year, great season. I've never been happier. We're going to win the league, you know. And yeah, so I, I don't follow football, but are you going to win the league? Of course, we're going to win yeah. the league. hundred uh, percent. This year is our year. Like, is, yes. is it optimistic or is it based on facts? It's a fact. You know? okay. we are more than twenty <laughs> points ahead. You know, um, awesome. Yeah, and traveling, traveling is good. Uh-huh. You know, traveling, uh, is really important. Spend. You know, and, and just unwind. No more going to dance club, you know? That's it. Yeah. You had enough. Awesome. Uh, so, last question we ask everyone. Uh, if you could choose your last drink, what would that drink be? Whiskey highball. Oh, that was straightforward, man. Why, why whiskey highball? It's, it's, it's what I drink every day. Uh-huh. I'm a boring man. I go to any bar. Uh, sometimes I start with a beer, of, beer on ice or stout on ice. And then I whiskey highball all night long. And then I have a dry martini, uh-huh. two or three dry martinis. Just to send you to bed, eh? And then I finish with a highball and I sleep. Oh, cool. Yeah. And uh, what's your favorite place for a highball here in Singapore? Um, of course, my own bar because it's free, right? <laughs> <laughs> like your style. <laughs> That's why I have a bar. I know, right? You know? <laughs> free highballs for uh, everybody. If not, if I go to other bars, it's $22 <laughs> plus plus. Oh, my freaking Lord. <laughs> no, but I, I would say um, right now, I really like the Mitsuari and uh, the high balls at Leaf Twice. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Amazing. The, the blend of whiskeys and uh, filtered water from Hokkaido. Uh-huh. Oh, Aki is a genius. Cool. It was awesome to talk to you. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you, guys. Have a great one. We hope you enjoyed listening to our chat with Colin. You can find us on Instagram at unjagged underscore media and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.